Amen. Well, as we are here this morning, we are here in all the variety, all the diversity of our persons. We are men and women, males and females. And newsflash for our society, only men and women, only two genders. But we're here as men and women and boys and girls, males and females. We are of various shades of skin color. We have had various upbringings and backgrounds. In some of our cases, very charmed and happy upbringings. In other cases, upbringings marred with sin and fairly horrible. We have various levels of education somewhat variable incomes, and we have a variety of life experiences. And this particular morning, we even come from different nations. But friends, at bottom, we are only two classes of people here this morning. First of all, there are those who are in Adam, our first parent. And in union with Adam, you are still in your sins, because we have inherited the sins of our first parents. You are still under the judgment of God because you are in Adam. But with others of us, I trust the vast majority, we are no longer in Adam, but we are in Christ. And by virtue of our union with Jesus Christ, we have been forgiven of all of our sins. And those two states of people in Adam and in Christ have two destinies. Those who are still in Adam face the eternal destiny of being forever separated from God in the place the Bible describes as hell. And those who are in Christ by the grace of God, we have the future destiny of being with God forever in heaven and then on a new earth. And flowing from those two states and those two destinies, there are two goals or aims. If any of you sit here this morning outside of Jesus Christ, in Adam and in your sin, my friend, your greatest goal and aim in life ought to be to get in Jesus Christ, to get into union with Jesus Christ for the salvation of your soul. And how does that happen? You transfer your trust from yourself and any other thing and put your full trust in Jesus to take away your sins. Then you will no longer be an Adam, but in Christ. That ought to be your major goal, your sole aim in life. But what about for us? who are in Christ by the grace of God. What is to be our main goal and aim in life? Well, it is to be more like Jesus Christ. The scriptures call us to that. In Romans 8.29, it says, He, God, predestined us to become conformed to the image of his Son. The Apostle John says in his first letter, chapter 2, verse 6, we are to walk in the same manner as he, Jesus, walked. And the Apostle Paul said to the Corinthian church, imitate me as I imitate Christ, indicating that ultimately we are all to imitate Christ. And so we are to be like Jesus Christ, we Christians, in every area where the creature can be like the creator. And as I've begun a short series of messages on the subject of prayer, we want to look this morning at the prayer life of Jesus the life of prayer that characterizes the Lord Jesus, characterized the Lord Jesus Christ when he walked on the earth in his humiliation. And we want to look at the prayer life of Jesus with a view to imitating that in our own lives. So we're going to answer some basic questions. When, where, how, what, and to whom 
did Jesus pray? So let's begin. When did Jesus pray? Well, you know, the Apostle Paul tells us in one of his letters that we are to pray without ceasing. No doubt Jesus, who perfectly obeyed everything his father willed, would have obeyed that. That meant that he would have always been in a spirit of prayer, and he would have often offered up prayers to God. Sometimes people call those flare prayers, you know, that we just send up of a sudden. Jesus would have obeyed that. But we're going to focus on those times recorded in Scripture when Jesus gave himself to concentrated prayer. So first, when did Jesus pray? When, as far as times, did Jesus pray? First answer to that question is Jesus prayed in the early morning. And I'll be turning to a lot of scriptures. You can just listen. It may be hard to follow. If you all follow, we're going to have the flutter of a lot of pages. So you might just want to listen. But in Mark 1.35, we read, In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. In the early morning, while it was still dark. Now, if you're going to get up before the sun this morning, or it's about 10 minutes to 6. But at some times during the year, to beat the sun, you've got to get up at about 5 o'clock. So Jesus got up early in the morning while it was still dark. It seems to have been the pattern of Jesus to get up and pray early in the morning, first thing in the morning. And brothers and sisters, we can talk about some of the advantages of starting the day in communion with God. For a lot of Christians, that is their pattern, to engage with the Lord First thing, I know it has always been for me in my 53 years as a Christian. Why? In part, because it's before the press of the day comes upon you, before the pressures of the day come upon you, whatever that means for you, whether it means the cries of a little one that you have to tend to and give breakfast to or change the diaper, whether it means a, an older child that you have, children that you need to begin teaching homeschool to, whether it means driving off to work, whether it means getting barraged with emails, whether it means going off to your first job, reporting to someone, having someone report. Before the press of the work day, whatever that means for you, comes upon you, isn't it a good thing to be alone with the Lord? and to seek his face. How good it is at the start of the day to pour out your soul to him, to ask him to give you direction for the day, perspective for the day, and for life in general, to ask him for grace and help for the, the challenges that you're going to face that day, to unload your burdens. What a, what a sweet time the calm and stillness of early morning can be to our souls. Jesus sought his father in prayer early in the morning. And for many of us, that's a good time to do that. But Jesus also prayed in the evening. In Matthew 14, 23, we have this reference, Matthew 14, verse 23. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. After a busy day, with all its challenges and demands, all the output of mental, emotional, physical energy, Jesus got alone with his Father. And that can be a good practice as well. The day is done. How good it is to come before God and reflect upon the day, its victories, its defeats, to bring praise to God for the way he answered prayer that day, maybe to pray for the individuals that you interacted with that day. So Jesus prayed not only in the morning, but in the evening. 
And that could be a good practice as well as we reflect upon the day with praise and thanks to God, maybe with confession of sin for the sins that we committed that day. But then Jesus prayed often and habitually. In Luke chapter 5, verse 16, we read this, but Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. He often would pray. doesn't tell us morning or evening, but often. And I just want to say here, brothers and sisters, especially if you are a new Christian, it is so vital. It's not a matter of, it's not a legalistic thing to establish in your Christian life a daily quiet time. Christians call it devotions. I'm thankful from the very beginning of my Christian life, whether it was Campus Crusade for Christ or Inner Varsity, they got their hooks into me and they established me in a daily quiet time. Starting the day, reading God's word and praying. And I would strongly urge you to establish that pattern if you have not already. A concentrated, undistracted, as we'll talk about, focused time on meeting with God in his word and in prayer. But that's not the only time to spend in prayer. Maybe commuting to and from work. Maybe your break time at work. Maybe lunchtime. Take other occasions to seek God in prayer as well. Jesus did that often and habitually. But then Jesus occasionally prayed all night. In Luke 6, 12 and 13, we read, It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. That was in preparation for choosing the 12 apostles. Um, And this is not something supernatural. This he did in his humanity. And there may be times when we as Christians would pray for a good part of the night, especially for special concerns. When I was introduced to the Amish, And I believe it was August 9th, 2005. If that was a Friday night, I have to check. That was the night I made contact with the natives, so to speak, in this new mission field. And I met Amish Christians down in Holtwood, southern part of the county. And after meeting with them at about 6 o'clock and on, they said, oh, by the way, we're going to have a prayer meeting at 8 o'clock. But we're going to pray until the early hours of the morning, like 2 or 3 in the morning. And they did. I stayed till about 11 o'clock, came back a couple weeks later. That was my entry into the Amish community. But they were serious about praying. I think they wanted to imitate their Anabaptist forebears. And they were praying some serious prayers through most of the night. They were newly converted, facing persecution from the system, and they prayed for many hours. Jesus occasionally prayed all night. So that's when Jesus prayed so far as time. But I want to answer that question from another angle. When did Jesus pray as far as the experiences of life? Let's take this from a different angle. First of all, I want you to see that Jesus prayed after a great expenditure of energy. Coming back to Mark chapter 1, I'm going to read a few verses from Mark chapter 1. Jesus prayed after a tremendous output of energy. Mark 1, beginning at verse 29, immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever, and immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. 
And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she waited on them. When evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city, a little bit of hyperbole, but the whole city had gathered at the door. And he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. And then verse 35. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Do you see the picture? Jesus had expended tremendous amount of physical, mental, emotional energy healing people, doing hand-to-hand combat with the powers of darkness as he was casting out demons well into the night. Pouring himself out. You can imagine the the compassion of the Lord Jesus. He saw these needs. He saw this suffering. And his large heart of compassion went out to them. And he expended himself healing and delivering these people. And then what does he do? First thing in the morning. He gets up. He goes out to seek his father in prayer. William Hendrickson, the commentator, says, So again and again, Jesus would withdraw himself and steal away to lonely places. This withdrawal also had a positive purpose, namely to pour out his heart in prayer in order that the reservoir of his body and soul might be replenished by his father's inexhaustible resources. And we have the same need. Think of Elijah, that Old Testament prophet. Elijah had that titanic battle with 450 prophets of Baal. And after that battle, he was exhausted. He was literally depressed. And what did the Lord do? The Lord put him to sleep. Well, the Lord gave him some water, some food, put him to sleep. Things will look better in the morning, Elijah. God tended to him because he needed to recoup. He needed to refresh his soul after that tremendous output of spiritual, emotional, and even physical energy. And we need that as well. After you have poured yourself out in some particular endeavor that has exhausted you physically, mentally, emotionally, it's good to get alone with God, to refill the well, to replenish your exhausted resources. Does that make sense? Jesus needed that in his humanity. But also, Jesus prayed when perspective and priorities were challenged. In that same passage, Jesus heals many people, casts out many demons. He goes early in the morning to pray. Well, his disciples did not leave him alone. Listen to verse 36 and following. Simon and his companions searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone's looking for you. He said to them, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also, for that is why what I came for. You get the picture? The disciples were, Jesus, your work is not finished. Jesus, there's more people to heal, more demons to cast out. You got to come back. But Jesus had been alone with his father and he had been reminded of the commission the father had given him. Not to park in one place, but to go from village to village, place to place. That's why I came out. What is the point? 
The point is that Jesus did not take his agenda. He did not take his marching orders from other people, even his beloved disciples. He took his marching orders from God the Father. God was dictating where he went and what he did when. Do you see that? And brothers and sisters, we all have callings, and we all have priorities that God has given to us. Your first priority, Christian, is your relationship to God. So you must guard that alone time with God. Your next priority, if you're married, is your spouse, your husband, or your wife. After that, your next priority is your family, your children. After that, are you aware that the household of faith comes before the world? Galatians 6.10, do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. The church has a prior commitment, a prior claim on you and your commitment than the world. And so God has given us priorities that must be honored. And how easily these priorities can be disrupted. And we can get off track and get mixed up. We can neglect time with God because of the pressures of family or work or even church. We can neglect our spouse because of the demands of children or church or work. We can neglect our families because of the work of the church. Pastors are sometimes guilty of this. They're out there counseling everybody else and their families being neglected. We can neglect the church family because we're out there doing things in the community. But God says, do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. And so there are many ways that our priorities can get disordered. And then priorities change. You're a single man or a single woman, and you get married. All of a sudden, new priority. You're a married couple, and all of a sudden, children come along. New priority. Life is not static. It changes, and with it, our priorities change. Your children are raised. They're out of the home. Your nest is empty. New priorities. So there are many ways that our priorities can be disordered. It's a moving target. And so, like Jesus, we need to make sure we're not being bullied by the agendas of other people, but we're allowing God to dictate our priorities and to stay on track with what he has called us to do. How do we do that? Like Jesus, spending time alone with God in prayer. But then Jesus prayed when temptation presented itself. In John 6, 15, the context is Jesus has just fed 5,000 plus people. It could have been 15,000. That's just the men, 5,000. He just fed 15,000 or so people with five loaves and a few fish. And the recipients of that miracle were thrilled, and they had plans for Jesus. Listen to John 6, 15. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Remember, the Jews had very carnal notions about the Messiah. They weren't looking for a spiritual savior. They were looking for a political king. And they thought, wow, 
everybody's going to get fed free lunch with this guy. As um, the black preacher Tony Evans says, they were not looking for a king. They were looking for a Burger King, he says. And, uh, you know, they were thinking, imagine with that kind of power what he could do to our Roman overlords. Here's, he's our man. We're going to make him king in an earthly sense. Friends, that was a temptation to Jesus because he wasn't called to be that kind of a king. And as the story unfolds, it's clear that they weren't seeking him spiritually. He said, you need to seek the food that endures to eternal life. They had wrong motives. But it was a temptation to Jesus. It was also a temptation to Jesus in the wilderness when Satan came, showed him all the kingdoms of the world, and said, bow down and worship me, and I will give you all these kingdoms. Now, God has promised to Jesus in Psalm 72 that he will receive the nations as his inheritance. And Satan was coming, and this temptation here was, you can have the crown without the cross. You can be glorified without going through the humiliation of the cross. That was a real temptation to Jesus. And so, what did he do? He withdrew to be with his father alone. William Hendrickson says the implied suggestion to try to obtain the crown without enduring the cross was able to foment a bitter struggle within him. How else can we explain the bitter words uttered in Gethsemane, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. That temptation came to him in the garden as well. To bypass the cross, get the crown without the cross. It was a temptation to Jesus, and in those times of severe temptation, he prayed. And brothers and sisters, are there not times when you and I are more strongly tempted than at other times? Are there not some seasons of time when the, the fiery darts of Satan's lies and accusations and attacks are coming more hot and heavy than usual? Isn't that true? The Bible calls it in Ephesians 6, the evil day. And it's in the context of putting on the whole armor of God that we might be able to withstand against the devil in the evil days. Evil days come upon us when the temptations are unusually strong. We need to do what Jesus did. Withdraw to be alone with God. and Pray, pour out our hearts and say, Lord, this is too strong for me. Give me grace to resist and withstand. But then when trouble threatens, there's another time that Jesus prayed. In Matthew 14, 1 to 11, we have the account of John the Baptist being arrested and subsequently beheaded by Herod. And then picking up in Matthew 14, 12 and 13. Matthew 14, 12 and 13, we read this. His disciples came, that is John's, and took away the body and buried it, and they went and reported to Jesus. Now, when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. And when the people heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. Jesus just got bad news. John the Baptist has been beheaded. John the Baptist was his forerunner. No doubt, this was a little foreboding of what was going to happen to him because Jesus knew his hour was coming when he would be crucified. Now he hears in his humanity, John has been beheaded and he withdrew. 
Now, apparently the crowds followed him. He proceeds to feed the 5,000. That interrupts his time alone. But then picking up on verse, in verse 22, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. Not only did he pray because he was facing the temptation that they wanted to make him king, the wrong kind of king, but he also had in his mind the trouble that was threatening, clearly resonating in his mind the fact that they had killed John the Baptist. Hendrickson says, the shocking intelligence of the Baptist's cruel death required reflection and quiet meditation. Friends, here is another time when we need to withdraw and be alone with God and pray when trouble is threatening. Is it a threat to your health? It is, is it a financial problem? It is, a, is it a relational struggle? Is it a time of unusual stress and distress? We need to get alone with God in prayer and have him settle our, pray, our fears, our anxieties, Commit our way to him, remind ourselves he is sovereign, he's in charge, and he will work all things together for good. So those are the occasions when Jesus prayed, and we ought to imitate him. But where did Jesus pray? Let me just rattle off a bunch of statements as to where Jesus prayed. Luke 6, 12, and it was at this time he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. Matthew 14, 23, and after he had sent the multitudes away, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray, and when it was evening, he was there alone. Luke 5, 16, but he himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. Mark 1, 35, and in the early morning, while it was still dark, he arose and went out and departed to a lonely place and was praying there. And finally, Luke 9, 28, and some eight days after these sayings, it came about that he took along Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. You notice where Jesus prayed? He prayed in a place of solitude, a place of isolation. He went to the wilderness. He went to a lonely place. He went to the mountain where he could be undistracted. Not only do we need to have an undistracted time with God, We need to have an undistracting place, whatever that means for you. For me, I've always been one who likes to walk when I pray. And I can think back over the 53 years I've been a Christian to some of the places where where I prayed. The church that was instrumental in my conversion in northern New Jersey had a big field. It's now a community park, but it used to be a big field and it had a path and I would walk around that field and pray. When I was in seminary, between our seminary building and an elementary school was a big field and there were paths and it was loaded with pheasants. I never, rarely saw them, but I could hear them cackling. And so amidst the cackling of the pheasants, I would go and walk and pray. When I pastored at Downing Town, some of you know the building for 19 years, I did thousands of laps around that building praying there, and now we've been privileged to live near Marsh Creek State Park that has miles of, of path. And uh, for me, it's the least distracting to walk when I pray. Somehow the linear movement of my body helps the linear movement of my mind. But the point is, you need to get alone. 
in a quiet, undistracted place, maybe where you can pray to God out loud, be, make it undistracted, not in the midst of a lot of hubbub and distraction. Now, how did Jesus pray? I think the fullest description of how he prayed is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, granted, that was an especially intense time. That was a time of extremity. But how did Jesus pray in the Garden? Well, we've studied Mark. Mark 14.34 tells us, And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. Jesus prayed with exceeding sorrow, with deep grief. Verse 39 says, again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. You know, from Matthew, he prayed three times. He prayed with a heavy heart. He prayed repetitively. And you know how he ended that great agonizing prayer. Lord, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Hebrews 5.7 gives us a clue as to how Jesus prayed. It's probably a reference to his Gethsemane prayer. But I think it would apply to some of his other prayers as well. Hebrews 5.7 says, In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety his godly fear. We ought to first of all thank God that he prayed that prayer in the garden and resolved in not my will, but thine be done. Our salvation hung in the balance as to whether Jesus was willing to go to the cross or not. He, he went to the cross and he paid for all of our sins. But we can learn about how he prayed here. How did Jesus pray? Not only in the garden, but probably characteristically. He didn't pray dispassionately. He prayed with passion. His whole being was involved in his prayer. He prayed with holy emotion. And I submit to us that we ought to pray with some holy emotion, whether it's holy love or or holy compassion or, or holy anger. Jesus prayed with compassion. We see from Jesus that he poured out his heart to God very freely, even saying, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. You read the Psalms, and the Psalms are, Psalms are often very honest. Not knowing exactly what the will of God is, they, they tell God what they want. Lord, would you do this? Would you grant this? Lord, would you heal? But then we learn from Jesus that we always append our prayer. After expressing our desires and our wants, not knowing what the will of God is, we always end it with the disposition and sometimes the words, yet not what I will, but what you will, right? And we can learn from Jesus' prayer that there's a connection between our godliness and prayers. He was heard because of his piety. He was heard because of his godly fear. And James 5.16 tells us the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Yeah, the state of our heart does have something to do with the efficacy of our prayer, Psalm 66, 18, it is, says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. We need to come to God with a pure heart and a good conscience, righteously, that our prayers might be effective. But then what did Jesus pray? Let me just give you a sampling of what Jesus prayed for, what we have record of in the Bible and New Testament and how that instructs our prayers. 
He prayed for little children. Matthew 19, 13, and 14. Then some children were brought to him so that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. And Jesus said, let the children alone. Do not hinder them from coming to me. Now, unlike what our Presbyterian brothers and sisters say, he didn't baptize them. But he prayed for them. He prayed for little children. And we pray for little children. When children are born into our midst, we pray, Lord, give their parents grace to raise them in your ways. And may they come to know you at a very early age. Jesus prayed for little children. He praised his father for sovereign grace. This is interesting. Matthew eleven twenty five and 26. Listen to this. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. He praised his God for sovereign grace. You have hidden these things from some and you've revealed them to others. Are you able to praise God for sovereign grace and his good pleasure? Jesus did. He prayed for Simon's faith. He knew what Simon was going to face in his bravado, in his self-confidence. He knew what was coming down for Simon. And so in Luke 22, 31 and 32, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail and you, when you have once turned again, strengthen your brothers. He prayed for Simon, for Simon's faith. That's instructive for us. We need to pray for one another, pray for the faith of one another, right? Against the temptations that our brothers and sisters are facing. Pray that God would strengthen our brothers and sisters where they need strength and grace. We need to pray like Jesus did. His longest recorded prayers in John 17. We don't have the time to go through that great high priestly prayer, but I'll give you the headings. He prayed for himself. Father, restore to me the glory that I had with you before the world was made. It's not wrong to pray for yourself, the will of God. I personally pray four things. I've told you four H's for myself every day. I pray for humility. I pray for holiness, especially in the area where I may be struggling to be holy. I pray for harmlessness, and I pray for um, heavenly-mindedness. Those are four things I pray for myself. I pray for love, greater love. I pray to die to self. It's good to pray for yourself, the things that God wants for you. Um, then he went on to pray for the apostles, that they be kept from the evil one, that they be sanctified in the truth. Your word is truth. And we need to pray for our brothers and sisters. Pray that we, we, God would protect them from the evil one. Pray that they would be sanctified and try to pray specifically for that. And then he prayed for the church universal, that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. He prayed for unity in the church. And he played, prayed for the glorification of his people. And so we should pray the things that Jesus prayed. And then, finally, he prayed for the forgiveness of his enemies on the cross. Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. You have enemies. You have people who have wronged you. You have a hard time forgiving that. Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them. And we need to forgive our enemies. Finally, to whom Jesus prayed. You might think, well, that's obvious. Well, hold on. 
Matthew 11, 25 and 26, I pray, I want you to see a pattern, okay? As to, to whom Jesus prayed. I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent, etc. John eleven forty one. Father, I thank you that you hear me always. John 17, 1, 11, 21, 24, 25. Father, the hour has come. I come to you, Holy Father, even as you, Father, are in me. Father, I desire, O righteous Father. Matthew 26, 39 and 42. My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Luke 23, 34 and 46. Father, forgive them. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Father, save me from this hour. Father, glorify your name. Pretty clear pattern, right? Why did he call God Father? Because... By his mediatorial work, God, well, God was his father. He is the natural born son. But he was also turning God into our father by his work on the cross. And I submit to you, there are a lot of ways you can address God. Lord, Lord, God, God Almighty. But I submit to you that perhaps one of the predominant ways in imitation of Jesus, you ought to address God, is father. Because that's how he did it. Father. Why? Calling God Father honors Jesus Christ. Because for God to become our Father, Jesus Christ had to pay a dear price. He had to become sin for us. As we saw last week, to turn the, the, the throne of God's wrath into a throne of grace throne that smiles at us, a throne that invites us, a throne that delights in us. He is our Father, though he be in heaven. And I say you honor Jesus when you say Father, because it cost him everything to purchase the fatherhood of God for us. And I also suggest that you call God Father because it should be of great comfort to you. John says in 1 John 3, 1, see how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God and such we are. And when you call God Father, you're mindful of all the best that fatherhood represents. It doesn't matter what your earthly father was. If he was a bad father, get that out of your mind and form a right view of God. God is your father, should be a great comfort to you. My father provides for me. My father loves me with a love that won't quit. My father disciplines me and trains me for my good. My father loves me with an everlasting love. And Christian, if the word father sticks in your throat, and maybe it's easy to say God, but it's hard to say father, it may be because you've got a wrong view of God. Maybe it came from your natural father who wasn't the most loving, kind, compassionate. You need to form a, a clearer view of God. And you need to understand how God sees you in Jesus Christ. You are as spotless and pure as the driven sun, snow rather, in his eyes in Jesus. Get better views of God so that you can come to call God Father. But there may be someone here who cannot and really should not call God Father because he's not yet your Father. He is your God who made you. He will be your judge, and you can't avoid that whether you like it or not, whether you believe in him or not. He will be your judge before whom you stand someday. 
And apart from Jesus Christ, you will hear the awful words. If you've lived for yourself in rebellion against God and not bowed the knee to him, he will say to you, depart from me, I never knew you, even into everlasting fire. But that can change. God can become, instead of a God of wrath, and instead of you being a child of wrath, he can become your father, and you can become his son or daughter. But there's only one way. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. So I invite you, if you're in Adam, outside of faith in Jesus, I invite you, I plead with you, put your faith in Jesus alone. And immediately, all your sins will be forgiven. God will become your father. You will become his child. And your eternal destiny in a moment will be changed from hell to heaven. That's the good news, friends. That's what the Bible and the gospel and Jesus Christ is all about. May God give you grace to believe. Let's pray and then sing a final hymn. Jesus, thank you that you are our Savior primarily, doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. But you are also our example. And as we've looked at your prayer life in your humiliation, praying to your Father, we pray that you would help us to be like you, and to imitate you in our own prayer lives, which will be to your greater glory and to our greater good. Help us. We pray in your name.